Howdy. This is a uh, fuck. Welcome to the fail. Uh, no, no, I got this. I got this. All right. Welcome to the Art of the Fail. This is a podcast hosted by Christian Borgazan, co-founder of Arch, and myself, Chris Buttonham, co-founder of OB.ai. We sit down with startups and entrepreneurs or anyone interesting willing to sit down with us. We hope that we uncover lessons and anecdotes, but if not, we hope you get a laugh. <laughs> Nobody likes this shit. Let's just get started with the show. So for this season, what Chris and myself have have done is uh, we've brought on an incredible sponsor. And, well, to be honest, the main reason for that is because we're broke and we wanted more money. Yeah, what do you think we got? We do this for? Of course, you know, I like hanging out with you, buddy. I like hanging out with you. I like bringing <laughs> out the guests, but we're entrepreneurs. We get with it, right? We got to monetize this bitch. So we brought on a kick-ass sponsor, Stones & Hustle. Stones & Hustle is... The ultimate lifestyle brand for entrepreneurs and hustlers of all shapes and sizes. So if, well, first of all, if you haven't checked out the the video podcast on YouTube, where you been, go there, okay? Go check out The Art of the Fail on YouTube, and then you'll see some amazing threads that we've been wearing all season long. We got t-shirts, we got, we got uh, hats, and you can get that and join the movement at stonesandhustle.com. Stonesandhustle.com. Get your gear, join the movement, and keep hustling. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of The Art of the Fail. Uh, not to be confused with The Art of the Start. You'll find out in a, in a little bit uh, right now. Um, I might have given that away to to some people who who follow along with this next guest very closely. Uh, I've actually I'm not even lying to you. I've actually got goosebumps right now. I can't believe that we have him on the show. Um, well, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm usually pretty good at these introductions, so I'm sorry right now <laughs> if I'm screwing this up. Uh, I I promise you, I never do. But this next guest of ours needs no introduction. Uh, arguably one of the most well-known names in Silicon Valley, the startup world, ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. You might know him um, as an author of about 15 books, speaker, venture capitalist, uh, you know, evangelist of Canva. Uh, we just know him as being a great guy. Guy Kawasaki, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Uh, yeah, so like I was saying, we like to do a little bit of a Q&A so that we can get to know uh, the real guy a little bit more. So let's get started. Uh, we know what you had for lunch because you just told us that right before <laughs> we started recording. Uh, what'd you have for breakfast today, guy? Today for breakfast, I had a cup of coffee and old scone something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. That's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, I iPhone or Android? This might be a controversial uh, answer or question, depending on how Actually, you answer it. That's a simple question uh, because, well, two reasons. One is my family and wife in particular wants to know where I am many times. Right. And the second, <laughs> because you really can't use an Apple Watch without having an iPhone. The reason why Apple Watch, and really 90% of why I use an Apple Watch, is because there's a particularly good surf tracking Apple Watch app that's okay. not available on Android. Yep. 
Now, having said that, I also have an Android. I have a Pixel 3. And, you know, I tried to give it up, but I really, I think the, the Android interface and the Android OS yep. has so many advantages over iOS. Chris would agree. Yes. I I, my Pixel, so I have a Pixel and an iPhone. Yeah, I have a Pixel. I'm a big, big Pixel fan, and I, lo I love the camera, and, uh, and the OS is really great. And I just I just made the switch back to uh, to using an iPhone, so it's kind of like relearning uh, a couple things with the interface again. But I, I like it. I enjoy it. I mean, I've, I I kind of missed my iPhone when I didn't have it, so I was sort of like looking for an excuse to get back to using an iPhone. Um, I mean, breaking and smashing your phone accidentally is not the <laughs> right type of excuse that I would recommend to anyone. It ended up costing me about like $800 anyway, so uh, a very expensive excuse, but I'm back on iPhone. I want to know what gets you, Guy Kawasaki, up in the morning and keeps you motivated. What is it? Uh, I have two really big tuitions to pay still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, you, you know, marketing can mean so many different things for so many different people. Just the definition alone of what marketing is. Uh, what does marketing mean to you? If you could sum it up in a couple uh, words in a sentence. Yeah, so marketing means communicating the unique value of my product or service. Simple. I like it. Easy does it. Um, Guy, what is your favorite book of all time? You are allowed to say one of your own. No. Um, favorite book of all time is If You Want to Write by Brenda Eulett. Cool. Awesome. Um, I guess before we kind of get into it, what does what does failing mean to you? And do you believe that failure is inevitable? Well, failure of everything is not inevitable, obviously. But to fail is inevitable. No Love one, it. no one bats a thousand. Uh, failure to me means basically running out of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a big failure. Yeah, we've actually we've talked about that on the show as well. Uh, cool. So speaking about failure, let's. Uh, Let's get right to it. Let's start talking about those failures uh, and kind of break them down and, and then we can uh, kind of take little nuggets from there. So, Chris, why don't you take it? Yeah, for sure. So, Guy, for the three people out there that uh, don't know you, can you just give us a bit of a background on who Guy Kawasaki is and, uh, um, and how you came to be? Okay, so um, basically I worked for Apple in the previous century. I was Apple's software evangelist and then evangelist my job was to convince people to write Mac software then I started some companies I became a writer and a speaker I spent a year working for the Motorola division of Google and now I am the chief evangelist of a company called Canva which is an online graphics design service yep I'm a Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador cool and finally I am a executive fellow at the Haas School of Business of UC Berkeley Nice. So, awesome. Guy, I got to say, I got to interject there. I actually stumbled across Canva um, probably about two years ago from you, something you might have posted on some sort of social network. I have been hooked ever since. I use Canva probably five. I might use it every day, actually, just for little things that I'm designing as a non-technical designer. Uh, it's a really good tool in my toolbox. So just wanted to, to say that. Case. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So that's a good segue, actually, Guy. What does evangelism mean to you, and why have you sort of um, 
you know, gravitated to those positions and in a way sort of pioneered those in, in the tech uh, space. Yeah. Uh, uh, basically, evangelism comes from Greek terminology, meaning bringing the good news. So what an evangelist cool. does is bring the good news. What a salesman does is make commission. Yeah. So I brought the good news of Macintosh. I am currently bringing the news of Canva. So this means that you know, it's not only good for you, but it's also good for the other person. So when I tell you to use Canva, yeah, don't get me wrong, it's good for me, but I also believe it is good for you to help you mm-hmm. create graphics that help you become a better communicator. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so let's t- let's take it back to the previous century, as, as you mentioned. Um, <laughs> and you did do a, work really closely with uh, Steve Jobs. And I was curious, what did failure look like in front of Steve Jobs? Well, it was a humiliating, <laughs> soul-crushing, intimidating <laughs> experience because... Uh, he had very low tolerance for BS and yep. incompetence. And he also, let's just say subtlety wasn't his strong point. <laughs> so he would just rip, and he would rip you in public. So uh, I learned a very valuable lesson that you know everybody says be positive, you know, communicate, yep. focus on the good stuff, you know. Steve Jobs did none of that. So he ruled by fear, and I yep. have to tell you that fear works. Yep. So that's actually a follow-up question I had. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? If you had to, you know, narrow it down, what did you learn about failure from Steve Jobs? It's not an option. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling that would have yeah. been the exact answer. Dumb, that you dumb question, have, Chris. That you would have given. No, not a dumb question. I was just, I guess, sort of anticipating yeah. that guy would have said that. Yeah, but you know, from listen, in a sense, you know, Apple had its failures too, right? right? So you know, nobody's using a Lisa today. Nobody's using a uh, an Apple three. Nobody's using a Newton. So it's not like Apple has had a hundred percent success rate. Yeah. Although I would say success rate is a lot higher than most companies. So uh, for me, you know, Steve Jobs, you can. Interpret what he did in one of two ways, or maybe both even. So one way of looking at him is that he knew what people would come to want. Another way of looking at it is basically he did whatever the hell he wanted, and then he convinced people to want it too. Either <laughs> of those interpretations work because, frankly, he did both. So uh, you know that that is a good wrapper around what is failure. It's when you when you either cannot anticipate what people need mm-hmm. or you are not able to create what you want to create and then make everybody want it. So, so in a perfect world, do both, which is Steve. Uh, in a you know, still okay world, you would do one of the two. And if you <laughs> cannot do either, you... So you famously touted that exact sort of mantra where uh, you shouldn't build things that customers yeah. want if you want to be ahead of the curve. Can you explain why it's a failure to actually, you know, listen to your customers in that way? Well, uh, this is a very, very you know, careful thing we have to talk about. So mm-hmm. I'm saying that you cannot ask your customers how to revolutionize your product or service. Right. 
your, your customers are going to tell you, I want a bigger, faster, cheaper Apple II. You know, I want a bigger, faster, cheaper gasoline car. Uh, I want a bigger, faster, cheaper, you know, watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want a bigger, faster, cheaper Walkman. And so in each of those cases, I, I don't think Sony's customers could have told Sony, build an iPod. And I don't think that Apple's customers would have told it to build a Macintosh. They would have said, bigger, faster, cheaper Apple II. Now, once you ship your revolution, iPod, Macintosh, or you know, whatever it is, then customers can tell you how to improve it. But I don't think they can define it initially. Okay. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And obviously mm-hmm. the um, dichotomy between both of those is important. Yeah, definitely. So um, would you say, this is kind of on another breath uh, as it relates to Apple, would you say that you leaving Apple uh the few times that you did, was that a mistake? Was that a failure in, in its own right? The few times that I did what with Apple? You left Apple? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I left Apple twice, and I turned Steve down for another job. So uh, was that a mistake? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you know, probably a couple hundred million dollar mistake. So, uh, yeah. That's a big you, number. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> back, if I had just sucked it up either of those three times, um, well, first of all, I would not be on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Well, the funny backstory, anyways, for everyone listening and watching. Um, wow, Fortune is really in the follow-up. We we probably tried for like two years to get a guy on on the podcast, and thank god that you are on um yeah we've we've just been like actively trying to get you on the podcast so i could only imagine if you had those you know 100 couple hundred million of dollars like we wouldn't even been able to get a hold of you in the first place so i mean for our sake thank you i guess (laughs) if 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 i had you know stayed at apple and be worth a couple hundred million bucks and all that my people's people would be responding to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they probably still wouldn't even reply to us. But <laughs> that's awesome. So, um, wondering if you could um, uh, sort of double down on a few of those key "quote unquote" uh, failures that Apple had, and from your own perspective, share how you think that actually influenced Apple's success in the long run, like yeah. the Newton, like the Lisa. I, I know this is, listen, and I don't work at Apple anymore, so, yeah. you know, I, there's no reason for me to just tool a party line. But what you have to hand to Apple, and I would say in particular Steve Jobs, is at least they did brave stuff. Yeah, You know? Absolutely. I mean, they took shots. They didn't just make MS-DOS, MS-DOS 1.1, MS-DOS 1.2, 3, 4, 5. So if you look at not not just the platforms, but you look at the things they tried to do, like they put CD-ROMs in every computer. They they use Firewire. They use USB-C. I mean, I can't tell you I agree with everything they did, but, you know, holy cow, they did big things. So as an aside... I will tell you that I think the person who's closest to being a current Steve Jobs is Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do you, Elon Musk is not going to be 10 for 10 or whatever he is. Right. But at least he tries big 
stuff. And you can make the case that Steve Jobs truly changed the world with digital devices. But if Elon Musk is right, you know, he'll be sending people to, to Mars. He'll be drilling tunnels in their cities. He'll be having cheap solar panels. He, he has already forced the entire automobile business to go electric. Yep. So you could make the case that Elon Musk will have bigger societal impact than Steve Jobs. What do you what would you say is a common characteristic amongst a Steve Jobs and an Elon Musk that you've seen? Uh, humongous ego, humongous self-confidence. Uh, you know, fake it till you make it. I mean, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of clueless people who have those qualities too. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the difference between Elon Musk and, and Steve Jobs and every other clown is that they can deliver. Right. Yep. Okay, awesome. Execution. Yeah. So um, I did want to chat uh, briefly about um, you You started up or you were, you were at least part of starting up Garage Ventures. Is that correct? Yes, yes I was a founder. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, how that was going founding garage venture ventures um and then doing that through i believe it was the bubble right where you where you were yes. running garage yeah. yeah yeah so uh we started the company called garage.com and garage.com was a little boutique venture capital investment bank so the vision was that there are lots of entrepreneurs and there's lots of potential investors there needs to be something in the middle to connect the two right. so it would be garage and uh, it, it morphed itself from being an investment bank providing services to becoming a primary investor like a venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. um, say it's, it was moderately successful, you know, nothing like Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins or anything like that. But we were trying to basically democratize venture capital. And uh, it was, you know, a semi-success. And so did that, uh, I, I think I heard you, you chat about Garage Ventures and, and how, you know, you were sort of running that through the financial crisis and how that definitely had an impact in. Yeah, I mean, so we, we started it during the dot-com days and, you know, everything was going to go to infinity and beyond, but then the bubble collapsed and it was just before we were going to go public. And so... You know, life's a bitch. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and so how did how did you parlay that yeah. into uh, into positivity? As as you you're so just you're so radiant with positivity all the time. You know how did what how'd was your next move yeah. after that? Yeah, how'd you how'd you bounce back? Uh, well, you know it it never it never totally imploded in the sense of yeah, some of, you read about some of these dot-com startups or even startups today that they're high flyers one day and then the next day you're reading that they're having a bankruptcy and liquidation right. you know all that so it kind of faded into the sunset it didn't implode and so I, I never had to like explain you know why I was such a loser <laughs> um, and then I just I just moved on. I mean, garage still existed and it's still right. doing stuff, but you know, it never, it never achieved worldwide domination. That's for sure. Um, but it was a valiant try to change the venture capital business. 
what do you think that the common pitfall in modern venture capital is then? Listen, I used to be a venture capitalist, and I disliked the business. Um, 99.9% of the time, you said no, and the other you know, one-tenth of a percent of a time that you mm-hmm. say yes, know that within the year, you're going to have to beat the crap out of the CEO. Yep. Um, you always deal with other venture capitalists who are the biggest bunch of egomaniacs. You know, <laughs> um, I just... I, I'm not – listen, I have great respect for Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia and, you know, those kind of places. But I can't tell you that they're high on my list of organizations or industries that I admire. Um, you know, in a sense, the way it works is you raise a billion-dollar fund. You have a management fee of 1.5%. So, you know, you have 1.5% of a billion dollars coming in. And that's for you to just show up, you know, five days a week after you play right. golf. And if you totally screw up, you still get one and a half percent of right. a billion dollars. And then if you don't totally screw up and somebody in your partnership hits a home run, you make tens of millions of dollars. Meanwhile, everybody's sucking up to you because you're the money guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I just described a really great life. Um, <laughs> All right, there's like no downside, yeah. you know, to being a venture capitalist, right? Yeah, definitely. So, um, walk well, us. Oh, I don't, you know, I. Oh, go ahead. I, I just, I just, uh, people, people ask me for advice all the time. Young people, yeah, yeah. They want to be an investment banker or venture capitalist, and I think those are the two worst jobs for a young people, young person to start in, because you're basically not learning anything. Mm-hmm. You're carrying some assless bags on private jets <laughs> and you learning nothing about truly operating a company. Right. And you're not making the world a better place. How do you, know, you... you know how it feels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um let it out. Is there any fixing that or how do how do how do early stage companies operate without venture capital? Well, I, I think that, you know, venture capital should be looked at as the last resort, not the first. Right. Um, I think venture capital is basically like crack. It feels great when you get it, but eventually it's going to kill you. Yep. Uh, I think that, you know, between, well, first of all, the costs of starting a company are much lower now, right? Because mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't buy it. You know, entire buildings to co-locate your website you use amazon s3 you have to buy laptops okay um you you don't really have to have as much expensive real estate because you can have virtual teams all the tools you need are probably open source and uh your marketing you use social media which is very cheap if not free so the barriers to entry for a tech firm these days are much lower which means you need less money, which means you need less venture capital mm-hmm. at all. So I, I think you know the right attitude is let's see how we can make this company work without venture capital. And now um, I think it's very important for your, your audience to understand that there's a so-called venture capital deal. And so people have to understand that a venture capitalist 
wants to fund the next Apple, Google, Cisco, you know, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, Canva. They're not, not trying to make the world a better place. They're, they, the venture capitalists, they, they are not trying to create jobs. Um, they're not trying to help create a new kind of you know, retail outlet or restaurants or whatever. They want to put in 10 million bucks and get 200 million back. Yep. Um, that wipes out most of the kind of startups that happen. You know, so that's not applicable to a restaurant, to a consultancy, to a service operation. I mean, you know, and I think a lot of people, they're just pissing in the wind trying to raise venture capital because they're not a venture capital deal. I mean, you have to be thinking that within five years or so, you're going to be doing two or $300 million in revenue. Yep. And so that eliminates a lot of service firms and consultancies and restaurants and retail operations. Uh, um, so, you know, it's, it's foolish to spend a year or two trying to raise venture capital. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, there will be a restaurant that raises venture capital and goes public and, you know, becomes the next Starbucks. Okay. But, you know, besides Starbucks, who can you name? So, um, think Google, Apple, Cisco, Yahoo, Pinterest, Instagram, Canva. Not, oh my, you know, my uh, my buddy and I figured out a great way to make recyclable coffee cups. We need five million bucks. I mean, <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so you talk to a lot of founders, right, and um, a lot, lot of venture capitalists. What would you say, or what from your experience, is the most common failure in early stage, early stage companies? Running out of money. <laughs> <laughs> Running out of money. Um, um, I would say, I don't know if I can narrow it down to one. Right. But uh, so some common things. Common thing is. You know, total, total failure in terms of delivery schedule. That you, know, you think you are the first company in the history of man that's going to deliver software within one year. Yeah. It's probably because you have never finished product in your life. So, you know, when people tell me when they're going to finish, I add a year. When people tell me their first year revenue, what it's going to be, I divide by 100. <laughs> so, you know. Add a year, divide by a hundred, you're going to be all right more often than not. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like you know this crazy optimism of delivery and how fast the dogs will adopt eating your food. Yep. Never happens that way. Yep. Um, a second thing is, and and kind of a follow-on to this is because they're so optimistic and delusional, and they think their product is going to be on time and have these amazing sales, they ramp up their infrastructure. Because you know they need multiple locations, they need you know, 24 by 7 um, support. They need you know reams and reams of paper and food and you know people, and we have to have like the best you know, everything, right? And then your software is a year late, and no one's buying it, so you have all this overhead just eating into your capital that is sitting around, and you think, oh, we have so much invested in training them. We can't get rid of them now. I know we're going to meet the next deadline, and then you miss the next deadline. And so you run out of money, and you're an idiot. So the, the advice I have is you should eat what you kill, Yep. not eat what you plan to kill. 
Yep. Good advice. So uh, a second, a second cautionary yeah. thing is people hire similar people mm. that, you know, the, the, the firm is not diverse enough. So, you know, geeky people hire geeky people and sales right, people right. hire sales people. But really you need to hire people who are different from you. So if you're the geek, you need the salesperson. If you're the salesperson, you need the geek. If everybody's a geek, you have nobody to sell. If everybody's a salesperson, there's nobody's building the product. Yeah, I, th- I think I actually remember you talking about this probably on a uh, on a couple of you know the talks that you've done. Is that there are two types of people in the company, and they should always be complementary to each other. You, you have one person who builds the product, and one person who sells or markets sells. the product, and that's it. Yep. And I was like, shit, when I was watching, I was like, holy shit, that's absolutely right. Like literally that those are the two types of people in an organization. So given your experience in not only, you know, talking to a lot of early stage companies, but obviously a lot of your career has been spent in later stage, uh, uh, you know, successful organizations, what would you say? Um, the biggest failure is of those organizations and how does that differ from the early stage companies? Well, I think the, the biggest failure in existing companies is that for a variety of reasons, including going public and now they have to report great results every 90 days, yep. that you know they get comfortable and they don't try to create or jump to the next curve. So, you know, uh, one very good story is that in 1970 or 1975, an engineer at Kodak invented digital cameras. Okay? So can you imagine that engineer going to his boss saying, Hey, I invented a way where people don't have to buy film. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Kodak says, Yo, what a great idea. Let's put ourselves out of business. Yeah. <laughs> and so who, who uses a Kodak digital camera today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for that matter, who is film? That's true. Yeah. So that therein lies the problem that you know once you become big and successful, you you just try to continue on the same curve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sort of like a yeah loss of appetite for risk. I guess worried about the fiscal damage, obviously. But yeah. Not to beat a dead horse, but where do you think that Apple differed and continues to differ when it comes to innovation? Is it just leadership or is there something ingrained in the in the culture or the, the, the processes well, that changes that? I think ingrained in Apple is an engineering, you know, appreciation of engineering and engineering excellence. Um, having said that, you know, we expect Apple to create not just new versions of the same product, but we expect it to create new categories, right? Right. So it created a category of personal computers, Apple One, Apple Two, Macintosh, a new category of personal computer, GUI, uh, iPod, iPhone, iPad, a, a new category of digital device. Maybe Apple Watch is that new category, but the expectations for Apple are so high so, you know, when's the last time you read about people getting in line at midnight so that they could get the first thing in the morning, the first one in their city? It's been a while. Mm-hmm. But, you know, right now it seems like the Apple strategy is we'll put faster, faster chips in what we already make. Yeah, hallelujah. I mean, but that's, <laughs> not, that's not a new category. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that is. Uh, it's almost. Um, I. It's like the parallel to the venture capital hamster wheel that sort of companies get themselves on, where um, it's great. You know, you raise that that early stage money, or you you create that category, but now you have to live up to raising that next yeah. round, yeah. Yeah. or or like you said, you know, creating that new category. Very few companies who have created one category, yeah, yeah, much less several. So yeah, several categories. Don't get me wrong, and yeah, that's why Apple is a trillion dollar company, and you know, <laughs> yeah, and Kodak isn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yep, it's easy to say. It's very hard to do. Yep, definitely, definitely. Um, before we wrap up, I was kind of. Uh, I actually didn't know that uh, you you were involved with uh, Motorola. I'd kind of love to hear your thoughts um, and maybe an anecdote or two on yeah. on yeah. that. And and uh, I guess yeah. you know we don't even have any context of the timing, but I'm sure you've seen you know the ups and downs there. Yeah. So um, Google bought Motorola, and I was the special advisor to the CEO of Motorola, and uh, I, you know. My, my interpretation was that Google was going to get into the phone business. Right. And so, you know, don't you buy a great brand? Motorola was a great brand, right? I mean, it stood for, it, it literally invented cell phones. Yep. Uh, but then, I don't know why, you know, Google kind of gave up on Motorola and sold it to some Chinese company. And I, I think that Google gave up too early. Um, I actually think that's that's also true of Google Plus, but that's a whole different, you know, <laughs> yeah. a whole different direction we could go. So, you know, on the other hand, what do I know? I mean, you know, Google's worth—I don't know about—it's not worth a trillion dollars, but it's getting there. So, yep. what the hell do I know? But um, I, it's it's interesting that the guy who was in charge of R and D at Motorola is now at Google making all these great Pixel phones. And, Pixel phones are great. Phones, oh, they're boy. awesome. Almost yeah. got one. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> Made the switch back. Um, yeah, but you, you know, I, 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 there's a little story here. So, you know, what I don't understand is, um, A, why do people care whether their text bubble is blue or green? I do not understand. <laughs> yeah. Number two, you know, Green is a bad thing, right, in this world. And and it seems to me, just from a user interface standpoint, if I sent a message and it turned green, I'm yeah. on an iPhone, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it turns green, that's bad, right? Yeah. And to me, though, green means go, green means good, green means money, green means whatever, right? So why is green the bad color? Green should be the good <laughs> I agree. Red, red or blue should be the bad color. I don't understand that at all. I think that that's the most insightful thing we will talk about uh, <laughs> on this season of the podcast. Love it. <laughs> well, uh, okay, so I have a, I have a question for you. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna do a podcast. I I've decided I will start a podcast. Podcast is gonna be my new ver my new exercise instead of writing books i've okay. written 15 books i'm tired of writing books yeah i, so can, I, wanna, I can only imagine yeah i want to do a podcast so 
I have two ideas for the name of the podcast. One idea is obvious, which is Wise Guy, which is after my latest book, yep. right? But I am more emotionally attached and more enthusiastic about a second name. So I want you to tell me what you think of me calling my podcast this name, okay? Okay. The name is Duh, D-U-H period. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I like and it. You heard it first on the art of the fail. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you like it. I, I, I like. It. I love I tell, it. I love it. Yeah. Some people. Some people are have your reaction. I tell it to other people, and they say, "Well, that's elitist. It's condescending. It's insulting, and all that." And I say, "Well, you know, there's so much stupidity in this world, and so much lying and stuff that maybe people will gravitate towards right. something that says, well, duh,' you know, like." Well, for example, um, uh, vaccines don't cause autism. <laughs> <laughs> that's your opening. Uh, that's your opening episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, th- I love it, and I think that uh, I think uh, why one of the reasons why people resonate so much with you is because of that honesty. Yep. And absolutely, uh, you yeah. know, that transparency. So I think it's I think it's a great concept. And again, it first time heard here on the Art of the Fail. <laughs> right Literally, here. you're the first. You're the first public group I've asked this question. So. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Um, so I actually had a question there um, in regards to to writing that uh, not really on the topic of failure, but I was curious why you were drawn to the medium of writing books you've written so many books mm-hmm. and i'm wondering yeah. you know what is it therapeutic or or you know how did that come to be and how the hell do you keep writing it's 15 is a lot your, to your first question you know why, why writing and all that or why books is very honest and very simple big advances okay i love it yeah, that's 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 a that's a guy answer. Yeah, no, well, listen, no, I have gotten big advances, but it's just to me, writing a book is like putting out a piece of your soul. Okay, and the reason why you should write a book is because, duh, you have yeah. something to say. <laughs> Episode number two. Unfortunately, many people, particularly business writers, yeah, they write a book. For very impure reasons, such as I want to write a book to position myself as a thought leader. I want to write a book to increase my speaking. I want to write a book to increase my consultancy. I want to write a book for credibility. All total bullshit. Because you know what? People don't read books or buy books in order to to further your career. They're buying and reading books to further their career, their their happiness, their life, or whatever. So if you don't have anything to say and all you want to do is, you know, write the Schmo way by Joe Schmo, published <laughs> by Schmo Press, just freaking stay at home. I mean, it's don't, don't kill trees, man. Yeah. <laughs> Again, tell us how you really yeah. feel, guy. <laughs> let it let it out, guy. Let it out. <laughs> Second question. How do you how do you just how how do you keep writing like when you when you were writing I, I can only imagine like your first book, um, which was might have yeah. been in the eighties yeah. or nineties uh, at least uh, a while ago now, like did you have a thought that was like I'm gonna write three books four books 
Like I, I'm sure you weren't no, like I'm gonna write 15 books. No, I, I said after I wrote the Macintosh Way in 1987, I said yeah. this is it. It's my last book. Yeah, I've said that <laughs> 14 times. Yeah. <laughs> so, how, um, like, how did you just I, keep going? I guess a, an idea goes off in your head and. Ideas pop into my head. I said, okay, so now I'll write about evangelism. Then I'll write about startups because I was at, you know, Braj.com. Right. And then I'll write about, you know, well, this guy is a collection of stories of my life. Right. That's, it's not an autobiography. It's, it's more like, you know, these are all the mistakes I made. Let me tell you how and why and what happened. And this is the lesson. This is the wisdom of everyone. Yeah. So, now I may, you know, the irony may be that I'm going to do this podcast called Duh, period. And it's, it's going to lead to a book called Duh. Yeah, yeah of course. course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, duh. Which, which would be funny. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm going to make you uh, t-shirts that say, just duh it. Love yes, it. Yes, I love it. Love it. <laughs> we'll, we'll take we'll take two, please. Uh, awesome, guys. So before, uh, before Christian wraps this up here, I just wanted to give the floor to you. If you have any last moment, any last thought on failure or anything else for that matter, um, I'd love to give you the opportunity. So first of all, when you hear people say that, you know, failure is okay, fail fast, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Total bullshit. Yeah. Failure is not okay. You're screwing around with people's lives and money. You have to do everything you can to avoid failure. So don't have this cavalier attitude like, you know, they read it in Fast Company or Wired or CNET that, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll raise, <laughs> you know, five million bucks. And, you know, if it fails, it fails because failure is okay. Failure is not okay. Mm-hmm. And I would say that many people forget that the purpose of a company is to create customers, not to create PowerPoint. Excel and Word documents. <laughs> so, you know, create customers, not pitches. And the third thing is the most important thing you can do is finish your prototype. That is priority number one, two, and three. I love, love it. it. Love it. Guy, there thank you, you so much for the raw and unique perspective uh today before we go christian is gonna sign us off the way we always sign things off yeah so guy we always like to leave off on uh on one question promise you just one more that's it uh before you can uh, leave these two joe schmoes here um we always like to ask our guests you know if you could pick anyone someone you know someone you don't know someone maybe that even inspires you who you would like to see come on the show have a conversation with us about failure and their experiences who would that one person be or even two people? Uh, it has to be about failure, obviously, right? In in, a, in and around the topic of failure. Yeah. Uh, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. That would I mean, be good. Well, I, you know, okay, I don't know where you guys stand politically, but uh, it, it just amazes me that we had the most qualified person running against yeah. the least qualified yeah. person and the most qualified person lost. <laughs> I just, I don't understand that at all. Yeah. What, uh, that, that's just a follow-up question. Uh, that's I was, a, that, that's a big one I there, was, especially us yeah. being in Canada. I was, so we've, we've got a lot of questions. So <laughs> I was listening to, uh, I think, a, a podcast that you were on and, uh, you said that after the election, you got very political. Why, why was that? 
I got very political because uh, I noticed that in your LinkedIn post too, actually. My LinkedIn is all politics. Yes, so, I noticed the change so in that. Yeah, I, you know, I was in Germany, and I had dinner with these two friends, and they said, you know, guy, we ask our grandparents, and we wonder to this day, how did you let Hitler come to power? <laughs> and then they, then they said to me, you know, you wow. are in. 1930 it is 1934 america so you have a choice basically do you want your grandchildren to wonder did grandpa resist fascism in america and that's the day i said my grandchildren are not going to wonder if i resisted and that's when i got political there you go that's a good answer that's a great answer awesome guy well thank you again so much appreciate it okay thank you so much guy